Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, and welcome to Middle East Studies at the New Books Network. I'm Ruben Silverman, and with me today is Professor Sally John Uchikso's, an assistant professor of anthropology at University of California, Los Angeles. His book, which we'll be discussing today, Sacrificial Limbs, Masculinity, Disability, and Political Violence in Turkey, has come out in the past year, and it was the winner of the Fatima Marinisi Book Award at the Middle Eastern Studies Association this year. Professor Uchikso's book, explores the ways in which veterans' gendered and class experiences of warfare and disability are hardened into politics, how self, community, and the world-making practices of disabled veterans get tangled up with ultra-nationalist politics in contemporary Turkey. It's a wonderful book, and I'm very glad to have Professor Etchikso's with us today to talk. So I'm hoping, first off, uh, welcome to the show, and um, I'm hoping you can tell us a bit about yourself and what led you to this topic of disabled veterans in Turkey? Sure. Uh, thank you, Ruben, for this uh, introduction and for inviting me to this show. It's it's a pleasure to be here. So, uh, as you mentioned, I'm, I'm an anthropologist at the University of California uh, at Los Angeles. And uh, my work, uh, broadly speaking, draws from medical anthropology, political anthropology, disability and gender studies, and of course, Middle Eastern studies. And how I ended up working on this topic is actually a long story, but I'll try to give a very brief version of it. Uh, Obviously, uh, I'm from Turkey, uh, and obviously there's a biographical element to this story. I grew up in Turkey in the midst of the Kurdish conflict and witnessed the devastating effects of this uh, long-lasting armed conflict on the country, on all all aspects of social and political life. And in terms of my academic trajectory, uh, as a medical anthropologist, my first long-term fieldwork was on prenatal genetic testing. Uh, And I was particularly interested in in examining how gender and disability got co-constituting constituted in the testing process. Uh, So, you know, although the topic was really different, uh, my interests, my research interests were pretty much the same. And uh, my interest in reproductive politics led me to conduct uh, another research with the Kurdish urban poor on the issue of family planning. There, uh, while I was conducting this research in a, in, a, in a poor urban neighborhood in Istanbul, I met two disabled ex-paramilitary village guards. And these village guards, you know, were supposed to, I was asking them about their family life and their contraception, contraceptive use, etc. But their answers, their narratives of sexuality and reproduction were inseparably intertwined with their memories of war, which which were haunting them on a daily basis. And this is when this project was, I guess, officially born. I wanted to further investigate war disability as the issue spoke to my uh, already established interests around disability, masculinity, and political violence, uh, as well as my, my desire to understand the cultural dynamics of militarism and right-wing politics in Turkey, and maybe also beyond. Um, when I when I started this project in the uh, in the 2000s, mid 2000s, no work had been done on people that is conscripted soldiers who have been tasked with fighting the Kurdish conflict in the name of the Turkish nation state. So I wanted to write a book that would foreground their experiences, the experiences of uh, former conscripts who literally embodied the costs of the chauvinistic militarism deeply ingrained in the country's political culture. And that's how I ended up conducting this research. 
Huh, well, that's interesting because, as you say, like village guards are not state uh, officials, right? They're operating outside the state in some ways. But so you and then you shifted over to look at actual soldiers in the formal army. That's fascinating. Yes, village so, guards actually. Just to clarify, village guards uh, are are kind of paramilitary units. Uh, they are mainly Kurdish, but they are, they are on state pay. So they they are you know they get their salaries from the state. They're armed by the state. They have all kinds of rights and entitlements as these kind of people inhabiting a kind of murky zone between formal state employment and and you know uh, you know like uh, paramilitary uh, membership. So they are kind of state employees, but they're not soldiers per se. Oh, that, yeah. So that and so that is interesting because the focus of the book then is the formal people who have formal relationships with the state, a formal contract, if you will, with the state, and how that's disrupted by their injury. And so that I'd like to get right into the book then and talk about some of your chapters going in in order. Now, the book is organized, I guess, biographically or chronologically, however we might want to think about it, in terms of disabled veterans' experiences. You start with their experience in the military, then in military hospitals, then in the groups that they join afterwards, and ultimately their relations with the state and with ultranationalist politics. So first thing I'd like to look at is their experience in the military. And in the book, you discussed the mountains and counter-guerrilla warfare and the ways in which the bodies of these men are shaped and changed even before the, the dramatic injuries they receive. So I'm hoping you can talk a little bit about this, about what mountains represent in Turkey and how this changes them and leads them to a state that you call being in the mountains. Uh, sure. So first of all, uh, guerrilla war, whether in Turkey or elsewhere, requires uh, a quote-unquote hostile terrain, a kind of terrain that is uh, impenetrable to the state forces where guerrillas could, uh, could find refuge, right? And mountains, uh, you know, tropical forests, swamps, etc., have been historical examples of such hostile terrain. Uh, Kurdistan uh, is a mountainous geography. Uh, and, you know, like there are really uh, big mountains in, 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 in Turkey, in, in Iraq, uh, and also in Iran. And historically, these mountains have posed challenges to different states' gaze and authority. And they have hosted bandits, nomadic tribes, uh, you know, escaping states, centralizing attempts, uh, and more recently, guerrillas. And in Kurdish political folklore, there's a proverb that conveys this, this wisdom uh, very nicely. Uh, Kurds have no friends but mountains. So whenever Kurds have been persecuted in uh, Turkey on Iraq, they have always escaped to, to the mountains. And since the beginning of the, the armed conflict in 1984, or the most recent phase of the Kurdish conflict in 1984, uh, these mountains have hosted guerrillas. I mean, they have hosted guerrillas, leftist guerrillas before that date, but the recent conflict started in 1984. So until the, the 90s, really state um, did not have access to these mountains as it does right now. Um, you know, soldiers would chase guerrillas, but then would return to their barracks and they would be basically locked in their barrack, barracks for the winter and the guerrillas would, would, would you know, would uh, spend the winter on the mountains without being harassed by soldiers, etc. But the introduction of counterinsurgency techniques changed this whole dynamic. I mean, counterinsurgency is a military doctrine and it has all kinds of arrangements ranging from infrastructural arrangements um, that require all kinds of military and technical gear to all kinds of ideological arrangements. And the counterinsurgency proper in Turkey started in early 90s. You know, the generally the date of 1993 is marked as the beginning of counterinsurgency proper. And after that date, both 
soldiers' experiences of these mountains and the cultural representations of mountains in Turkish nationalist discourse have dramatically changed. Uh, you know, since 1984, millions of conscripted soldiers have been deployed on this in this mountainous geography as they pursued guerrillas. And they kind of developed an intimate knowledge of this geography that was alien to them. Right? So they, they, they spent like a year or two years of their lives on these mountains uh, and were you know, deeply impacted by these experiences. And the kind of larger representational uh, terrain of Turkish nationalism also kind of reflected these experiences uh, and kind of over time developed a love-hate relationship with these mountains, borrowing representational strategies from the Kurdish and leftist movements, while also continuing to see these mountains as spaces to be conquered and destroyed. So there are, you know, like, all kinds of cultural products around these mountains, nationalist poems, uh, films, uh, novels, uh, memoirs, etc., which are all kind of revolving around the figure of mountains. Um, maybe I can talk more about that as I talk about uh, the, the kind of experiences of soldiers, but uh, being on the mountains is a term that I coined to denote the experiential structures that came into being in this country insurgency process. It refers on the one hand to soldiers' bodily, uh, psychic, and affective experiences of country insurgency, you know, how this, these kind of transformations impacted them on a bodily and psychological level. And on the other hand, it refers to the cultural, ideological, biopolitical, etc. formations that structure their experiences. So it's a it's a, a genus phase term. On the one hand, it refers to collective experiences of soldiers. On the other hand, it refers to uh, the kind of larger social structures, political structures that kind of organize these individual and collective experiences. Yeah, and, and you even talk about how the experience of being in the mountains, it, it leads these soldiers to even become guerrilla in a sense, right? Taking on aspects, as you said, of the guerrilla fighters and that leads to violence often, right? Yes, exactly. So uh, becoming guerrilla is the term that I use to describe the effects of the, this transformation on soldiers' bodies. So counterinsurgency requires the kind of re, re, reorganization, reconfiguration of the army uh, from a conventional interstate war apparatus into uh, something else, something else that is small, mobile, flexible, um, you know, that, that, that would mimic the movements and organization of guerrillas. So soldiers, you know, after 90s were reorganized into these small mobile units that would do nothing but continuously walk on the mountains, you know, actively look for an encounter with guerrillas, etc. And there are all kinds of effects of this transformation. On the one hand, it's a very painful transformation for soldiers. It's physically very demanding. Uh, they, you know, they in, in the narratives that I collected from soldiers, uh, you know, they continuously talk about the kind of uh, painful effects of walking, uh, continuously, you know, the effects on their bodies. Uh, but at the same time, uh, there's, there's an excess in their narratives, an excess kind of enjoyment. When they talk about when they talk about this process, they always say something like, "You know, you had to see me. I was just like a guerrilla," or "I was actually, of course, they don't use the term guerrilla. They use the term terrorist. You know, I was just like a terrorist. Um, you know, and it's it's really interesting because there's this kind of. I mean, they are very proud and excited and and seem to be enjoying kind of becoming terrorists. Uh, and it's 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 kind of really interesting to see that because you know in all these narratives there's so much hatred and and violence directed towards uh, guerrilla buddies. So I I kind of when I think about this and and this is an issue that has been widely discussed in in ethnographies of violence, uh, you know, is the kind of distinctions between soldier and guerrilla buddies 
have been erased in the course of counterinsurgency. This led to a blurring of the boundaries between soldiers and guerrillas and self and the other. And this blurring of the boundaries has been accompanied by an increased violence targeting guerrilla bodies with the aim of reinscribing otherness at a corporal level and establishing sharp lines between soldiers and guerrillas. So, you know, as they looked more indistinguishable on the mountains, the more kind of violence uh, soldiers kind of unleashed on guerrillas. Uh, so this was this kind of dual process of becoming like the other and trying to distinguish yourself from the other through means of violence. Huh. Yeah, and I mean, w- one thing in reading your book that caught my attention so much was in your describing I mean, the, some of the physical aspects, the way walking becomes so important and the fact that like stepping on landmines then becomes the, for, mo- for most of these soldiers, the the moment where their disability occurs, like the, the transformative moment. And it's tied to this larger process of adapting yourself to the mountains. Exactly. So the increased mobility on the mountains comes with, you know, the increased chance of, you know, uh, landmine uh, explosions and becoming disabled through a mine explosion. So there's this kind of ironic or tragic thing going on there, you are more mobile on the mountains so that you become immobile in your civilian life. Yeah. Well, so, I mean, let's let's move from the mountains to the hospitals into civilian life. So you look at hospitals and rehabilitation centers these veterans enter, and you discuss the relationship of the state institutions towards these disabled veterans and how it changed from the 1980s on to the 2000s. And I'll quote you, you specifically write that in order to make up for the broken heteropatriarchal contract, various bureaucratic, medical, and welfare institutions were expected to take drastic steps to fix this gendered crisis by ameliorating disabled veterans' lives. So I'm hoping you can elaborate. What is this contract? How is it broken by the disability? And how has the state, especially during the 1980s, 1990s, changed the way it deals with these veterans? So let me start with the, with the, with the contract question, uh, because that is really important for the whole narrative uh, about disabled veterans' politicization. So when I talk about the heteropatriarchal contract between the state and male citizenry, I'm particularly referring to the citizenship um, to the citizenship constellation organized around uh, military service. In Turkey, military service is compulsory for men, uh, for men uh, except openly gay and uh, transgender men and, and men with officially documented disabilities. Uh, so, and, and historically, it has served as, as a rite of passage into you know, heteronormative adult masculinity. Young men are expected to to serve in the military before uh, they they can get formal employment and before they get married, etc. And there are all kinds of social and social and legal sanctions around that. I mean, uh, if you do not complete your military service, uh, you have to basically evade uh, state authorities which means practical suspension of your citizenship rights. You cannot vote, you cannot renew your ID, you cannot get a passport, etc. And then there are social sanctions. People, you know, families are unwilling uh, to accept someone, uh, you know, for marriage, you know, give their daughter's hand in marriage to someone who has not completed his military service. And the job ads continues to look for candidates who have completed military service. So there seems to be this kind of gendered contract, right? You do your military service and uh, only after that you can get your full citizenship rights and, and, and your rights as a, as a masculine social subject. So this has been there for decades and decades. Uh, but in the course of the Kurdish conflict, this, this contract has been dramatically destabilized, particularly for conscripts 
who went to military service and, and came back home disabled, right? Uh, these men, these young men, uh, because of the because of the widespread ableism in the society, because of the lack of accessibility in urban life, because of social stigma surrounding disability, etc., have been disenfranchised, have been socioeconomically marginalized, uh, have experienced all kinds of social and gendered anxieties around their their masculinities. Uh, so instead of you know, becoming full-fledged citizens and 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 unmarked adult men, uh, they have found themselves in a kind of infantilized state where they had to deal with the stigma of disability, where they had to struggle uh, finding a job or finding a spouse, etc. Now, this is the contract and its destabilization. And obviously, in the middle of an armed conflict, uh, this is, so this was, this kind of gendered crisis was the last thing that nationalist actors and the state wanted to see. Uh, You know, you, on the one hand, you are trying to recruit people in millions and deploy them in an armed conflict. And on the other hand, there are all these representations of these, these, or at least knowledge of these young men who are disabled and struggling, etc. So this gendered crisis was also a political crisis. Now, I have to uh, zoom back a little bit and say that, you know, um, in, in modern times, you know, with the emergence of modern warfare, citizen armies, etc., there has also been all kinds of, there have also been all kinds of developments, including new min- medical technologies, new welfare technologies that, seek to fix and erase uh, wartime losses of soldiers, etc. We have modern prosthetics, plastic surgery, welfare regimes that first emerge as a response to, uh, you know, handling the post-war reconstruction issues. Uh, So giving back heroes, you know, national heroes, what they have lost in war have been a concern of warring states since, let's say, the, the late, uh, you know, late 19, early, early 20th century. Now, Turkey did not have to address these issues uh, until very recently because Turkey was founded after the First World War, did not participate in the Second World War, although it launched, you know, it, 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 it uh, fought in uh, Korea and Cyprus. These were not really massive war efforts. Uh, so it never had the kind of disabled veteran cohorts of disabled veteran to to have these sorts of problems that the other states um, had to deal with uh, in their histories. For example, the U.S. after the after the Civil War, uh, most Western European states after the First World War, uh, or other states after the Second World War had to deal with these uh, kind of uh, burning uh, problems. So Turkey had to had to deal with them uh, in in late 80s, 90s when the war when the conflict escalated to a full blown low uh, war level, and when when you know uh, Turkey had uh, thousands of injured and disabled soldiers that required all kinds of uh, medical care and and post medical care and welfare benefits. Etc. So in 1991, uh, Turkey, Turkish governments uh, passed an anti-terror law, which was a turning point in that regard. Uh, this anti-terror law had, had clauses uh, giving soldiers all kinds of uh, special entitlements and welfare benefits. And after that date, uh, the state, you know, progressively introduced more benefits and entitlements exclusively for soldiers wounded uh, in, 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 in the conflict with Kurdish guerrillas. Not to, you know, soldiers who were injured, let's say, and became disabled in the, in the non-war zone as a part of their military service. Uh, especially in the 2000s, uh, there were all kinds of new medical institutions that were built to host 
uh, injured and disabled veterans. So we have the biggest rehabilitation center of the of the country, a Walter Reed kind of uh, uh, you know uh, hospital uh, in the capital city of Ankara, uh, and and then you know uh, we have the proliferation of the of the benefits and entitlements in the 2000s. We even see something like a special in vitro fertilization program for veterans with paraplegia uh, who require different kind of reproductive technologies in order to become fathers. So, you know, the state institutions start working in tandem with non-governmental organizations and celebrities, etc., with this kind of explicit gendered agenda of restoring veterans' masculinities, making them once again into productive and even reproductive citizens. Uh, and this is what I mean by this kind of state trying to fix this gendered crisis by ameliorating disabled veterans' lives. Uh, huh. Well, you know, you make, I mean, you make an interesting point that this type of activity can be found in other countries in the last 100, 200 years. But one thing that you highlight that is different between say, Turkey and other states, is this language surrounding it of uh, Gazi now, because other countries don't have that concept. They don't use that to structure some of the things they're doing. So I'm hoping maybe you can also talk a little bit about this idea of Gaza and Gaza status that's applied to these disabled veterans. Sure. Um, so the word Gazi, the Turkish word Gazi, and actually it's a cognate of the Arabic, Arabic word Gazi that I'm going to be talking about in a second, is often translated into English as war veteran or disabled war veteran, depending on the context of utterance. Uh, you know, this translation is fine uh, at times, but it also risks erasing both the religious resonance and the historically polyphonic nature of, of this word. I mean, Ghazi is actually a very, very, very densely charged, ideologically charged word. Um, you know, it's it's originally Arabic, uh, which used to refer to to people who took part in in a raid or in a holy war, uh, and and you know, at times in history, it has been uh, interchangeably used with with uh, with the word mujahid, uh, the the one who struggles or fights against the enemies of Islam. But over the medieval period, this term grew to be a title of respect and honor denoting a distinguished warrior, particularly a distinguished warrior of faith. And then later it became a title for Muslim sovereigns of empires, you know, particularly Ottoman sultans. And then in during the foundational years of the Turkish Republic, it became incorporated into Turkish secular nationalist discourse. Uh, so the founder of the of the Republic, uh, Atatürk, uh, you know, took on the title, um, and this, 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 you know, and this is very significant because Turkey constituted itself for, as a break from the Ottoman Empire, and generally all the honorific titles that were used in the Ottoman Empire have been banned by law. Uh, so Ghazi is actually can be said to be the only title that is officially that uh, that has officially survived the transition into the republic and it's often cited as an example of the sacralization of secular nation making practices by the use of islamic references so ataturk was the first ghazi of the turkey modern turkish state but the state continued to address war veterans as ghazis uh, so you know the 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 title was bestowed upon uh, the 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 veterans of the, the so-called independence war, um, and then to the veterans of the Korean and Cyprus wars, and um, so it became kind of secularized. You know, like now it basically means veteran. But despite this secular shift, uh, its popular religious resonances have, have persisted until today. Uh, and in the course of the Kurdish conflict, these religious re religious resonances actually, you know, help the state to harness the symbolic power uh, of the title. Uh, and and you know, in the, in the book, I analyze 
the kind of religious discourses surrounding the title. Uh, we have the 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 state's ideological apparatuses like the Dianet, the Directorate of Religious Affairs, uh, you know, talking about the 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 you know uh, the the promised place in heaven for Ghazis, how their their uh, miss, missing limbs wait for them in heaven, uh, etc. So there are all kinds of uh, religious discourses around uh, Ghazi, which is supposed to mean veteran, but it's more than uh, simply meaning veteran. It has all these kind of religious historical bagage accompanying it. Well, also, I mean, as you as you talk about in, I believe it's chapter five of your book, this status of Ghazi, it's recently been applied to these disabled veterans, and it was um, applied to them around the time that the PKK leader Abdullah Ojalan was captured and uh, prosecuted. So I'm wondering if you can talk about this a little bit, how you see these two events as relating to each other. Uh, sure. Um, so let me start with the Öcalan trial because it's it's a kind of really key event and a turning point for disabled veterans' lives and political activism. So the PKK leader Öcalan was captured, imprisoned, and put on trial in 1999. And 1999 was a critical date for Turkish political history, not only because of the capture of uh, the PKK leader, but also because it's the, it's the date that marks Turkey's acceptance as a European Union um, candidate country. And there are you know, intimate ties between these two events. Um, so, you know, when Öcalan was captured and brought to Turkey, uh, there was this kind of really nationalist propaganda, uh, the proliferation of nationalist propaganda in the mainstream media. And this nationalist propaganda mainly revolved around Martyrs' families and disabled veterans. Martyrs' families referring to the families of soldiers killed in the conflict. So there were nationalist tearjerkers and human interest stories that flooded newspaper pages and television news shows. Uh, so there was this kind of instrumentalization of the social suffering, uh, grief of martyrs' families and social suffering of disabled veterans for the purposes of nationalist propaganda. And, and this reached an apex during Öcalan's trial. Uh, during the trial, the, the state security court where Öcalan was tried accepted uh, a group of martyrs' families and, and disabled veterans as co-plaintiffs in the case. Uh, and right in the middle of the trial, the state officially bestowed the, the uh, honorific title of the Ghazi on disabled veterans, um, and then you know the, the 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 you know the there were all kinds of um, spectacular scenes in the trial, like a disabled veteran taking off his prosthetic limb in the middle of the trial, uh, you know, creating this this nationalist spectacle around his his. Uh, lost limb, uh, and then of course uh, the the Abdullah Jalan was sentenced to death, but the the uh, the death sentence was not uh, you know was not applied, and actually uh, the government uh, the the kind of nationalist government coalition came together and abolished that sentence uh, because the European Union. Uh, basically announced that if uh, Öcalan was was executed, that would be the end of uh, Turkey's EU membership prospects. And immediately following that, disabled veterans and martyrs' families hit the streets to protest the government and the European Union. And this was the first big wave of disabled veteran political activism. Hmm. And I guess stepping stepping back for a second, um, I am curious. It, it, for your for your work, you did spend a lot of time with 
some of these groups, right? So maybe if you could take a few minutes and talk a little bit about some of these groups you interacted with, I think that would be fascinating. Mm-hmm. So um, as a part of my fieldwork, uh, I regularly attended um, a couple of disabled veteran and martyrs families organizations. Now, uh, partly due to a law that was passed uh, in the aftermath of the 1980 military coup, disabled veterans and martyrs' families share the same institutional spaces. So there's a nationwide official association that brings together martyrs' families and disabled uh, veterans. And this is this kind of the only nationwide official organization. And then there are all kinds of unofficial, uh, actually illegal organizations uh, mm. that uh, that accept either martyrs' families only or martyrs' families and disabled veterans as members. I say illegal. Of course, no one would know that they're illegal because these organizations have immense political power. They regularly meet with with the highest-ranking military officials. They are uh, hosted in in official ceremonies you know, at dinners with the, uh, with the president, etc. But legally, they're not, they're, they're not really, I mean, there's only one organization that is legally allowed to enroll disabled veterans and martyrs families. But anyway, so uh, during, as a part of uh, my fieldwork, I attended these different organizations, mainly two organizations, one official organization and one organization that I refer to as the popular organization in the book. And uh, these organizations uh, brought together Marty's families and disabled veterans. And they they were really important hubs of welfare and nationalist activism, as well as important hubs of redistribution. They had their members, um, you know, uh, with with legal hurdles. Uh, You know, they were kind of really an indispensable part of the the political identity uh, of my interlocutors. Um, But then uh, there were also uh, informal collectivities uh, that around which disabled veterans uh, socialized. You know, for example, in the book, uh, I talk about this particular informal collectivity that I hung, hung out with for an extended period. Uh, it was a group of eight to ten disabled veterans that uh, met, you know, on a regular basis. Uh, they, their, you know, their families knew each other. Uh, you know, they helped each other uh, financially when someone is was in need. Uh, they had a kind of big man uh, at the center of the group um, mm. for whom I use Yaman, the pseudonym Yaman in the book. So Yaman was the big man. And there are, you know, seven, seven, eight other other men around him. And these guys uh, were skeptical of uh, these kind of official and popular association. And they had their own circles, although they also were members of these organizations they they had a cynical distance from them and uh, and it was a male only organization uh, so you know uh, we would go to the coffee houses uh, we would go to soccer games uh, I would go to political demonstrations with them you know so basically did whatever they did in their daily lives and uh, and all these all these, collectivities, whether we're talking about the official organization or the popular organization or this kind of um, clique, as I call it in the book, this this disabled veteran clique, they were all kind of, they all shared a couple of important socioeconomic uh, functions. They controlled charity flows. They gave their members a sense of camaraderie. Uh, They gave their sense, uh, their members a sense of collectivity, and obviously, importantly for the narrative of the book, they were all hubs of uh, political activism mm-hmm. around which disabled veterans, uh, you know, forged a collective identity through a common political struggle. 
Yeah, and I'm so I'm curious. Like, are there were there differences in the ways that the formal and the informal groups uh, performed their political activism, became involved in political activism? Uh, yes. Uh, the, the there were all sorts of differences. Uh, first of all, the 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 official organization had strong ties to the military, mm. and um, and during the time that I conducted my field work, uh, there was a, a rift between the military and the ruling party, Justice and Development Party. And mm. so they were closely aligned with the military. Uh, and they were also very careful to police and monitor the political activities of their members because that was a state organization, right? Mm. Uh, the informal organization uh, the, the popular organization, uh, popular association, was aligned with, uh, with ultranationalist political parties. Uh, and uh, it, it, it was not as restrained as the official association in the way that it, it uh, carried out political activism. So it could be uh, much more vocal uh, in its in its critique uh, of the state uh, and and even at times the military, but it was a hushed down critique. Whereas the 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 clique that I mentioned was very much invested in a in a in a form of direct activism. In the book, for example, I describe uh, this instance. Uh, of a political protest, uh, you know, where, you know, I, uh, alongside maybe a hundred veterans, jumped into cars, you know, created a convoy and and basically uh, went to the the rehabilitation center in Ankara, where the disabled veterans uh, entered into this kind of really heated altercation with with military officials who were said to not allow the the, uh, the veterans in the hospital leave the hospital to attend a political protest, uh, so there was this kind of really direct uh, and and you know, direct form of activism with no strings attached, which was something that uh, that uh, you know calculated moves of the associations could not really match. So there were differences, but these organizations frequently came together in political protests uh, around this kind of ultranationalist block that I describe in detail in the book against minority rights, against Turkey's European Union membership process, and against uh, dissident intellectuals who voice, uh, you know, critical perspectives on Turkey's record on minority rights and armed conflict. Yeah, and I thought that was a particularly interesting part too, because you know there, you can kind of, I, I would say, intuitively understand how these disabled veterans could focus their anger on someone like Ojalan. But during this period in the early 2000s, you're arguing that there's this transference from the focus on Ojalan to a series. You mentioned several of. Um, prominent intellectuals and there and I wonder if you could talk about this process a little bit sure um, you know going back to Ojalan case uh, I, you know the, the, the listener would recall that I mentioned that it was a really important uh, political spectacle and it was a turning point for uh, disabled veteran activism so when Ojalan was not executed, uh, particularly due to the pressure from the European Union, um, the disabled veterans um, were left, you know, uh, in a in a bitter bitter state. They 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 really pushed for the execution of Öcalan. They organized collective protests, uh, burned and theatrically hung dummies of Öcalan, uh, etc but they failed mm. to push for that. And this kind of created uh, really a sense of sacrificial crisis for, for veterans. In their eyes, their, their 
embodied gifts to the state, their, their lost limbs, their sacrificial gifts, uh, were never reciprocated in kind by the state. I mean, the state mm-hmm. gave them all these rights and entitlements, etc. But the, the state uh, did not give them one thing that they were asking for, which was, you know, blood for blood. And actually, this is, you know, uh, I have to say, this is not this kind of ancient vendetta kind of situation. This blood for blood, tit for tat kind of situation was actively produced through the machinations of the state and uh, particularly Erjalan's trial, which uh, basically pitted veterans, disabled veterans, against Erjalan and his family in the courtroom and beyond. So Erjalan was portrayed as the person individually responsible for the deaths of tens of thousands of people. He was portrayed as a monster, uh, etc. So, you know, his body was construed and constructed as a locus of revenge and retaliation uh, mm. for veterans and martyrs' families. Uh, and when, you know, the state, who kind of incited this kind of violent outlook, backed you know, uh, back down from the execution, this created this, this, this sense of betrayal, you know, and a betrayed promise uh, for disabled veterans. Mm-hmm. Uh, so in the 2000s, we see all these scapegoating attempts uh, mm-hmm. by disabled veterans and the larger ultranationalist circles, a scapegoating attempt that was seeking for a victim that could be substituted for Öcalan's body. Uh, and this surrogate victim was, was found, or I should say uh, produced, uh, mm-hmm. in, in the mid-2000s and swiftly became a target for my informant's process, uh, protest, dissident intellectual, um, or the public intellectual who voiced dissident perspectives on minority rights and democratization, etc. As I was in the field, uh, my my interlocutors, disabled veteran interlocutors, fervently joined in a witch hunt against, uh, you know, public intellectuals like the the, uh, novelist Orhan Pamuk, journalist uh, Periyan Maden, and most importantly, the Armenian journalist Hrant Dink, who was murdered by an ultranationist uh, youth during my fieldwork, mostly due to the political atmosphere created through these protests. Uh, So these protests, you know, on the one hand, built on the long-established nationalist tradition of scapegoating intellectuals uh, as over-westernized compradors, uh, traitors, etc., on the other hand, uh, you know, these, these kind of protests um, reiterated the performative logic of the PKK leader's trial. First, mm-hmm. you know, ultranations lawyers filed lawsuits against these intellectuals on charges of insulting Turkishness. Then there were these volatile protests in front of courthouses, uh, you know, uh, by my by my informants and the larger kind of ultranationalist community, and then of course uh, there was there were all kinds of uh, political uh, reverberations of these protests and the uh, European Union support for the intellectual, which was portrayed by the ultranationalist media as proof of an international conspiracy against the state. Uh, mm. So, you know, there was this kind of self-fulfilling prophecy of, you know, a kind of weak compromised state uh, that bows to the demands of the European Union, etc. And this is exactly the same scenario that disabled veterans experience uh, in the wake of the Erjalan trial. So basically, mm-hmm. these, these protests reenacted the social drama of the trial through the trial of intellectuals. And of course, 
once you realize this kind of mimetic reproduction of the of the performative structure of the Ojalan trial, uh, one can easily see how disabled veterans made this kind of psychic and political transference from Ojalan to the dissident intellectual as a as a site of vengeance. Uh, so when the initial object of vengeance disappeared, became accessible for them through the evolution of the death penalty, they helped to forge a new kind of scapegoat through what anthropologists call the mechanism of sacrificial substitution. Hmm. Well, I guess let me let me bring this up to the present day in a sense. So I think there's two ways we can take this. One is you talk, you talk about how veterans have experienced the last 10, 15 years in, ter- in terms of the financialization of their limbs, of some of their of some of the technologies they've been using in order to deal with their losses. And I'm wondering if you can talk about that a little bit. Uh, Sure. Um, So the issue of, uh, I I look at the issue of financial debt in my prosthetic debts chapter. uh, Mm -hmm. And uh, there I analyze the proliferation of what I call prosthesis repossession cases. In the 2010s, Uh, many disabled veterans faced debt enforcement, uh, either because they did not pay their prosthesis bills or because they could not repay the bank loans that they used to pay for their their prosthesis. And this was a novel phenomenon. This was due to the neoliberal restructuration of the Turkish welfare and banking systems in, in in the you know, in the 2000s until 2010s, disabled veterans generally got their prosthetic limbs uh, from from uh, states' prosthesis workshops, and these were kind of old-fashioned uh, prosthetic limbs with silicone sockets, uh, with no you know robotic control mechanisms or no uh, you know electronic control mechanisms. But in the 2010s, you know, there was this kind of boom in the prosthesis, uh, private prosthesis industry and import sector in in Turkey. And many veterans started to get advanced prosthetic limbs from these companies. But this time also coincided with all kinds of changes in, in the organization of the uh, welfare system and and the credit system in Turkey, so they they ended up, you know, in in uh, enormous amounts of financial debt that they could no way repay. Uh, so and then there was the threat of repossession, a repossession of their valuables, including at least initially and potentially their their prosthetic limbs themselves. And this hit a nationalist nerve. Uh, veterans, you know, uh, you know, in, in, in the 2000s, when you look at the newspaper headlines and TV news stories, you see these kind of sensationalist captions uh, like prosthes- pro- property repossession order for disabled veterans, prosthetic leg, shameless repossession order, disabled mm-hmm. veterans in the grip of repossession, etc. You know, so there's this idea that, uh, you know, uh, a private company or a bank is trying to kind of repossess a disabled veteran's leg or arm. And, uh, you know, like creating this this morally charged, uh, you know, spectacle, nationalist spectacle in which the disabled veteran is violently dismembered through mm. this, proce- uh, you know, um, repossession case. And veterans also, you know, uh, responded to these kind of themselves by, by uh, you know, deploying the political idiom of sacrifice, turning their own bodies into spectacles, you know, recording their grievances without wearing their prosthesis and posting them on social media, deliberately attending official commemorations, absent their prosthetic limbs, showcasing, you know, their, you know, uh, their absent limbs in front of the media, 
protesting government officials, etc. And so this this whole thing turned into a nationalist spectacle spectacle around sacrifice, debt, uh, and 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 it became a medium in which uh, veterans financial debt and the larger debt relations between the state and veterans have been contested through mediatized images. Mm. Um, so the idea you know, that emerged from all these spectacles was that uh, you know, the, the kind of capitalist uh, financialized uh, you know, economy should not operate for for veterans, I mean, neoliberalization can operate in all realms of social life, but you know there should be certain kinds of things that should be outside of its grasp, and this is this kind of a separate nationless sphere of exchange, which is characterized not by financial debt, but by sacrificial debt. And in that logic, uh, a disabled veteran cannot have debts because disabled veteran is a is a is a creditor it's you know it, disabled veterans are owed debts by the society and the state uh, hmm. you know so they we owe them the debt of gratitude etc uh, we cannot repay them these were uh the kind of common common sentences that you would hear from the mouths of politicians of military officials and then of course uh, this this kind of conflicted with the reality of prosthetics market where acquiring a cutting edge prosthesis required a significant amount of finance finance and and debt and then prosthesis repossession cases became the lens through which the veterans themselves and the larger society uh, you know dealt with these kind of uh, conflicting dynamics of uh, nationalists and and capitalist economies. Hmm. Well, so neoliberalism, the financialization and marketization of all walks of life has been a real hallmark of the Akepe era in Turkey. I'm wondering if, uh, as the final question, you could also talk about how uh, the status of Ghazi has changed too, especially in the last four years since the um, 2016 uh, coup attempt. Because uh, I think that would be an interesting way to wrap this up, see how, talk about how uh, this status that was once applied to your, the disabled veterans you worked with has expanded in the last few years. Uh, sure. So um, for those who are not very familiar with the recent developments in Turkish history, the 2010s yeah. were years that were marked by really rapid changes in Turkish politics. Uh, you know, until 2013, Turkey was hailed as this kind of model for the rest of the Middle East, a successful blend of Islam and democracy, etc., etc. And then after that period, the, the country plunged into uh, chaos, authoritarianism, political violence. And in that, in that, in those years, Following the 2013 Gezi uprising, uh, you know we see the proliferation of political violence and the kind of production of new victims and survivors of violence, who mm. kind of uh, had claims over the title of Ghazi, or you know um, worked for recognition, legitimacy, welfare rights, or monetary compensation via recourse to the title of Ghazi, etc. So we have, you know, initially, you know, until this date, we have the soldiers uh, and sometimes police officers unofficially endowed with the title of Ghazi. Uh, but when you look at the 2010s, you see different groups uh, being marked as Ghazis, different disabled bodies uh, being celebrated as Ghazis, etc. Mm-hmm. Uh, for example, in 2010s, you see this organization, diasporic Kurdish organization, 
uh, called Kurdistan Gazi's Union, which also uses the, the, the you know Islamic uh, you know idiom of Gazi uh, for mm. Kurdish guerrillas. Uh, you see the celebration of the, the protesters injured by the police through the tropes of Gazi and martyrdom uh, in the course of the Gezi uprising. You have the um, Gezi Gazis and Martyrs Families Association becoming a kind of significant uh, social actor. Um, mm. And then uh, when you come to the 2016, you see the emergence of a novel group of Gazis who are, unlike the first two groups, recognized by the state as Gazis. And these are the, the civilians injured while trying to stop the botched military coup attempt in 2016. Uh, so, you know, in 2016, there was a bloody coup attempt that led to the death of hundreds of people and the injuries of thousands. Uh, it was a really... Uh, interesting event in, in Turkish political history in the way that it pitted uh, civilians against soldiers, but it was the civilians who fought against the soldiers that were uh, glorified through the use of military symbols like Ghazi, mm. which, is, which is very strange in a way because the, the, the soldiers, the Kupist soldiers were, uh, were, were resignified by the ruling government and the larger society and the state as terrorists, uh, terrorists mm. aligned with the uh, with, uh, cleric Fethullah Gülen. Uh, so they were not really soldiers, but they were terrorists in soldiers' uniforms, as they are often hailed in Turkish media. Very mm. strange twist of events. But anyway, coming back to the civilians, uh, the AKP basically... Uh, Use the coup attempt to to create its own national rebirth story and to create its own loyal Ghazi heroes of the new nation, uh, you know, loyal to the party and loyal to the leader Erdogan. Uh, this continued a kind of longer trend in under the rule of the, the, the AKP, the Justice and Development Party, uh, during which the title of the Ghazi was, uh, became kind of neo-Ottomanized in a way and further Islamicized. I said that it retained its Islamic resonances, but it was more or less a kind of secular title. But when you come to 2010s, President Erdogan, constantly underlining the sacred status of Ghazis and that it's not a worldly status, it's not a secular status, it's something, you know, otherworldly, uh, something heavenly. So there was this kind of further Islamization of the concept. And then uh, there's also the kind of evocation of the Ottoman heritage of the concept uh, in line with the larger neo-Ottoman turn in uh, AKP's domestic and foreign policy. So uh, the the people you know who fought against the military or resisted the military and became injured uh, were hailed as these kind of new heroes, uh, you know, continuing this kind of military spirit of the nation, bringing it to the present. Uh, but. Mm. This this process was not without any predicaments. I mean, it had its own uh, predicaments. I mean, very recently, uh, some of these uh, new Ghazis that were supposed to be loyal to the party and the leader uh, organized protests uh, in mm. front of the in front of the uh, AKP center. And I have to say, no one can really. Uh, organized protests in the capital city in front of the ruling party's office in Turkey right now because of the uh, authoritarianism in the country. Uh, so they organized a protest, basically voicing the same uh, grievances 
with my interlocutors uh, and basically uh, showing that the, the, the same sacrificial crisis dynamics that I analyze in the book are still in play. So although there, are, there have been all these shifts and changes and ruptures, there have also been these important continuities tying the kind of previous political processes to those that are unfolding in present-day Turkey. Oh, well, that is really fascinating. Um, as I bring this to a close, I'm just curious, uh, where is your research agenda taking you going forward? Um, so I work on two projects right now that in some ways extend this this, this project. Uh, one tells, one a really, you know, this is an early uh, embryonic project, tells the other side of the story that I tell in Sacrificial Limbs, the story of those who were injured and disabled through the state's uh, direct or outsourced violence. Uh, I'm talking about political prisoners, activists targeted by the police or Islamic State attacks. And if I ever find a legally safe way to do it, ex guerrillas. Uh, and other, uh, yes, it's high, I'm a native, I'm a native anthropologist, a citizen of Turkey, and obviously there are all kinds of complications around that. And other project focuses on the heated political and legal disputes over healthcare provision to combatants and refugees along and across the Turkish-Kurdish-Syrian border. Uh, this is a project that I, I have been working on for a while now, and. Uh, I draw from my fieldwork with Islamist, Kurdish, and socialist humanitarian doctors, as well as from legal and media archives uh, to explore the, how the contestations over the meanings of health, humanitarianism, and terrorism lead to new forms of care and ethics in, in uh, Turkey's Kurdish region and Turkey's border zones. And one of my fieldwork spaces for that project is humanitarian prosthetics workshops. So that work, in a way, also continues my interest in the intersection of political violence and disability. Well, I really look forward to those works. Um, this one that we've been talking about, Sacrificial Limb, is a wonderful book. And I, we've only talked about some of the interesting anecdotes and details that you, and arguments that you contain in it. So I hope all listeners will take a chance to read it in the coming year. Thank you very much, Professor Atrixos, for taking your time with me today. Thank you so much for hosting me.